Why, hello, Thrivers. What is a Thriver, you ask? If you're a Thriver, it means you're a fan of this show. That's right. While you're all Thrivers in my heart, there's a more official way to become one, if you catch my drift. Go to www.patreon.com slash MrThrive to become a patron to this exciting opportunity for exclusive content, live updates, experimental media, insights, and more, all to keep you more in the action. Become a Thriver today at patreon.com slash MRThrive. Enjoy the show. You have stumbled upon Stars of Tomorrow, where every Friday I, Mr. Thrive, interview someone like filmmaker Linda Sparger, who is yet to be discovered. This up-and-coming podcast talks with the up-and-coming Linda. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I think I think it was like, yeah, I mean, it was episode four that I interviewed Nicole, I believe. Nicole Holmes. Yeah. And on that episode, we gave you a shout out. And uh, Nicole says you're better, or she's better. Do you <laughs> better do you... <laughs> at what? <laughs> do you believe that? Uh, she's better at goofing off than I am. Ooh, Nicole, did you hear that? Yeah. If that if that doesn't get to you, then <laughs> oh, got another thing coming. That's right. But uh, Linda, seriously, welcome to the show. Uh, also, I want to take a quick second to thank the Thriver. We have one singular Thriver on the Patreon as of right now. Her name is Vasi Belacon. She is actually one of the people interviewed on one of the actual Patreon episodes. Go ahead and check it out. It's fantastic. But um, back to the interview now. When you meet Linda for the first time, you realize there's not a project she's not working on. You have <laughs> You have so many of your octopus tentacles in every little pool truth what 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 are you working on these days well we just finished i directed a proof of concept called precedent for a tv pilot it's a political drama one hour drama wow and, uh, yeah it was a lot of fun my biggest project wow. um and we had 16 cast members plus 45 background. Sure. And what was your role in that? Directing. In that? You were the director of it. Yep. Did you produce a little bit of it as well or I, someone else I did? I didn't. Yeah. Okay. The showrunner and her fiance, they produced it and put it all together. That's remarkable. Yeah. And so now that came together, what was that like working with uh, those 16 individuals in the director chair? You know, it was a lot of fun. Like it, from the beginning, like when we were doing the auditions, you could tell that Everything was a different level because all the work I'd done before had been school projects and you had students. And this time we were auditioning down in Hollywood. Yeah. And the people who came in brought their A-games and they were next level people. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, I need to bring my levels up too. Sure. Which was great. Um, We ran six weeks of rehearsals. Um, prior to that, because we did a, a whole debate, mm-hmm. and the actors had a lot of dialogue they had to memorize, so we did rehearsals once, twice a week. Sure. Come shooting day, it was like, bam, we did 33 shots the first day. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot to accomplish in, in just one day. In nine hours. <laughs> That's unheard of. Uh, when you talk about raising 
yourself to meet the the standard of your production, what are some of those differences that you notice compared to prior productions you worked on? Well, I did a lot of sitting with the writer, uh, producer, uh, Sierra Phelps, talking about what her vision was as far as not just for the pilot, but for the entire series. Because she's outlined the first seven seasons. The first seven seasons? The first seven seasons, Already. yes. Already? Yeah. So we talked about what was going to happen in, in the future. So I had an understanding of where these characters were coming from and where they were going, um, which made it easier for me to give them notes. Not tell them what's going to happen, but be like, you know, I think maybe you should consider that, you know, your character, his career is not going to be so good. You know? <laughs> You know, that's, that's subtle, <laughs> right? Sometimes I wish people would come up to me and just kind of give me that your, heads your up. Your career's not going so well. Oh, thank you. No, your career's going great. Thank I, you. I appreciate I, it. I see you working all the time. I, I'm like, okay, he's off doing his thing. Yeah. Love it. Uh, I, I just actually made a post on my LinkedIn um, about how I feel like lately I've been addicted to work, and it's true. And there's there's a role model I look up to. His name is uh, Don Allen Stevenson III, and he's a really epic guy, really great, nice. fantastic entrepreneur, and uh, he works a lot with augmented reality. Um, and one one thing I see myself going towards is, is something that he's dealing with right now, which is uh, focusing now, shifting gears a little bit, so that way he can focus on himself, since he's been speeding and, and hitting the gas pedal so much. Right, right. You know, and, and, and we all need that. We all need that that, that occasional chill pill. Yeah. Right. Do you ever feel yourself getting to that point too? Yeah. Luckily, I have, I have good people around me who are not in the business, who will sometimes say, "Hey, maybe you should take a break." You know, sure. You've been working on all these projects and stuff, and just get out. Sometimes Nicole will do that too. Yeah. We'll, we'll both be like, you know, we need a weekend away. Sure. And you just go drive somewhere, and you do a little road trip. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, do you have a Do you have a non film industry related role model that you look up to? That's a really good question. I don't really think about role models either in the business or outside. Um, I guess I'd kind of look at my parents a little bit. Both of them were really hard workers. Sure. Who did what they needed to do, you know, to make the family survives, so I don't know if I looked at role models, it would probably be them. That's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say my parents are probably up there, too, in terms of the non-film industry-related role models. There's, there's a few others on my end as well. There's, there's like, one guy who's a, he was, uh, in high school, he was a class clown, yeah. and now he's a motivational speaker, yes. and I didn't see that coming. It was, <laughs> right? uh, it was crazy, and I remember he, he did a speech for uh, uh, UC Santa Barbara, he did a graduation speech for them, right? And it was it, it actually made me tear up. His yeah. name is uh, J D Slackert, really great guy. Nice. Uh, it does make sense though, because you know most people who are the class clown, they they kind of like the center of being the center of attention, and they sure. have something to say, but they don't quite know how to say it. That's a good point. You think that and you think that's it? I I think that's part of it. You sure. know, um, a lot of people I've noticed. I do a lot of 
on the site, I like to study psychology. Okay. Um, and why people do what they do. So <laughs> another tentacle. Another, another tentacle. Pool. Yes, in another pool. Um, if I could, I'd be an FBI profiler. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, people who act out like that, they are trying to say something, and maybe it's something is happening at home that they don't understand, they can't process, or it's something internal. Maybe they've realized that you know they're gay or something. Not necessarily, but right. You know, that's just an example. Sure. Um, and th- this is how they deal with it, is by acting out and saying, hey, I need help, but we're not reading. We're just saying, oh, he's disruptive or he's really funny or whatever. Right. I mean, it's really good that he was able to take his energies from doing that and focus on using his skills Right. to to continue to entertain people in do that you, way. Do you do the same yourself? Do you take certain things that you can't explain and illustrate them in your own In my writing all the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, what's what's an example of, of a project that really uh, um, was from a place of vulnerability? Like um, actually, there's a, a fan fiction story that I wrote uh, for Criminal Minds. That is true. You do write fan fiction, yes. don't you? Um, the story is called Secrets, um, and it's about David Rossi coming to terms with the death of his son. And I wrote it because his son died a few a few hours or a few days from birth. And I wrote it because my parents actually had a child who died within a couple of days of being born before my brother and I were born. Wow. And as an adult, I've realized that everything that happened with that changed the way my parents were. It changed their relationship. It changed, you know, their whole being. And my dad and I didn't always have a great relationship. He wasn't a good dad. But now I understand why. I mean, I don't completely forgive, but I can see, you know, the caught up of emotions in losing that child. And then the biggest thing is she was born somewhere around February 26th. I know she died on the 26th, so some, sometime at that point. Mm-hmm. My birthday is February 23rd. Wow. So I'm sure it wasn't easy for either one of them knowing that they were going to have another child, another girl, born at the same time. It puts salt in an open wound, doesn't it? I think so. But yeah. it's, it's, it's obviously not your fault. No, no. And, and so I wrote this story, and I, it was great because I got a lot of um, emails from people who were like, I'm so glad that you were able to talk about this from the man's point of view. Because we often, when a child is lost, we look at, oh, the mom must be devastated, blah, blah, blah. We forget that the father has feelings, too. You know, and that that death of a child can affect them as well. Yeah. So. I, so. Fi- I find the stories that have been most personal to me, uh, where you really had to dig into the raw emotion of it, uh, inadvertently create the best stories, create the best product of your own of your own effort. You know? Absolutely, yeah. 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 It's it's weird how that works. Yeah. They do say <laughs> write what you know, but I think you should also write what you feel. What's what's the time that you kind of experimented with those two concepts in juxtaposition? I probably do it all the time and I don't realize that sure. I do. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I can't think of any specific um 
Well, a lot of it, I, I tend to write police stories because I wanted to be a cop. And I worked in the sheriff's office for a long time. So I know a lot of cops. And like, I see on the news all the things that are happening with the shootings and, you know, the reputation that police are getting. And I think that's not my police officers, the ones that I knew. Sure. Because the department I worked for to date, as far as I know, has never had a shooting of, of that type. Thank God. Yeah. Um, the officers, you know, they're the philosophy of that department. I don't know if it's still true today, but it always was, if you can figure out a way to solve the issue without using violence, let's do that. And so... Is that something with all police officers or just, just your county? I mean, as far as I know, just... It, it's my county, but I'm sure there's other departments out there. I mean, there's thousands of police departments across the country. So um, I'm sure there's others that have the same philosophy. Sure. I'm sure there's others that have never had a, a shooting either. Yeah. And the only things we see are the ones who have been shooting people, you know. Um, so kind of a write what you know, write what you feel, that's, that's where that comes from. Because I know officers who would never you know, unprovoked, sure. shoot somebody. Have you ever tried to write what you don't know? All the time. And, and is that successful? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's successful. Yeah. <laughs> I get people to read it, and they send me notes saying, hey, I love that, so I guess it works. Cool. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to think, like, in terms of the stuff I've written. Like, right now I have a film in development called Box of Heroes, Sorry, sorry. I have a film in post production that's it's called Box of Heroes, Ooh. and uh, I, I've never experienced uh, uh, the the life of a, of a like I've never experienced uh, what it's like to be a, a, da- a daughter, a girl mm-hmm. uh, who whose dad has having such a midlife crisis that he can't focus on me, you know, as right. a woman. I've, right. that's, I've just never experienced that. <laughs> um, you probably never will. Probably never will. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> never say never but <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh, you know i i the i think the feelings are real and some of the relationships are real in that um like sometimes there, there's a point where like i, I just really want to uh be able to to connect with someone family or not family right and i'm not able to do that and so that's what that script's about is that that uh Putting the salt in the wound of not being listened to. Right. That's kind of what I was trying to evoke in this. Did you write it? Yeah, I wrote it Ooh. and uh, I co-produced it and co-directed it with uh, two other uh, two other fellows of mine. They're okay. Really great guys. Yeah. Yeah, I want to see that now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's common. We just got the assembly done and uh, now it's going under color creation and sound design and I th- after that i think i just need to get uh somewhat of a soundtrack in there nice and uh we got ourselves a movie Woo-hoo. how <laughs> long is it oh it's gonna be like a seven minute movie you know that's awesome it's coming out soon so I- i'm pretty excited about it um along with other projects that i've been working on but you know to bring it back to you you're not just working on the fan fiction you're not just working on precedent yeah uh you also have a movie that you were telling me about called sometimes i cry yes well, t- tell me so, about that sometimes i cry is a 
documentary that's going to be longer than the world is round. <laughs> it's about homeless women, particularly women over the age of 40. Um, I chose the subject because I lived the subject. Um, I, when I was in my final year of college, I lived in my car for eight months. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> it was kind of a choice. I had the opportunity to make that choice. And the reason I had a job, it wasn't a full-time job, but I had a job, but I didn't make enough money to, to be able to pay rent and pay for my car and insurance and all of that kind of stuff. And so I had to make a choice. Was I going to get rid of my car and have a place to live or get rid of my place to live and have a car? Right. So you obviously <clears throat> chose the latter. I, I chose the latter. Um, and it, in the moment, it was, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, I, I couldn't sleep much because, you know, I, I slept in the front seat of the car with my car keys in my hand, in my pocket, ready that at any moment I could turn the car on and drive away if something happened. I also kept a knife under the seat. If somebody got in, I was prepared to take care of myself, you know. Good. Um, but it was really hard to sleep, <laughs> you know, because you're always on the alert. What's going to happen? Is somebody going to try to get into me? Because of fear, yeah. But it also was very freeing in the way that I'm like, I, I actually have a little extra money. And if I want to go somewhere, I can just go. Um, you know, I actually ate out a lot because <laughs> mm -hmm. I could afford to do so. Mm -hmm. um, had a good entertainment. We go to the movies or, you know, do fun things and stuff and not have to worry about, oh, how am I going to pay the, the light bill? Or, right. you know, I have to do the dishes when I get home. Sure. I have any dishes, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, if I wanted to sleep at the beach, I drove to the beach and I slept there that night, you know. Uh, so... In that way, it was It was really, I can see why people like to live in their vans or in RVs and travel around, which is something I still want to do. Yeah. Um, but also, there were some times when I tried to get help, and because I wasn't being abused, I wasn't a drug or alcoholic, um, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have children, and I didn't have mental illness, there was no place for me to go. Right. They, there's no programs for people like that. Because they figured that you were doing it too much by choice for them to be a program for? No, because they just aren't prepared for that. Mm. I mean, the <clears throat> since 2015, the number of people homeless people in Los Angeles has risen like 300, 400%. Wow. It went from somewhere around 50,000 to almost 80,000 now. And that increase, some of it is because mental illness um, programs have been cut. So some of it's mental illness. But a lot of it is people who just can't afford housing. Right. You know, they have jobs. Some of them have jobs. But you can't afford a place to live. Not unless you want to live 15 people into one apartment. Um, I'm lucky enough that now my roommate, <laughs> Ooh, I got excited. Go ahead, there. go ahead. 
my roommate and I, you know, we have a decent place to live that we can afford at this time. But if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be, I still wouldn't be able to afford it. Sure. You know, so I wanted to make this documentary, talk to the actual people on the streets and bring awareness um, that there, there is an issue here. And I also think of it as a, in a way it's, we kind of dehumanized homeless people. When you're, if you're walking down the street, I like this example, if you're walking down the street and you see a, a kitten or a puppy on the side of the road, most people are going to pick that kitten or puppy up and find them a home. Okay. If, even if it's not with them, they'll take it to a shelter or something else. But if you see a homeless person, you'll cross the street to get away from them or you'll walk past them quickly. You know, there's no, there's no humaniz- humanization there. Sure. Empathy is incredibly important, but just to play devil's advocate. Absolutely. How, you know, what's what's the alternative to making sure that you're safe around what a lot of people consider a wild card? You mean as, like, walking past somebody who's homeless or, sure. or something like cause that? Sure, I, because I, I, like on, on one hand, I'm like, yeah, there, there should be empathy. There should be you know, uh, going up and, and, and conversing. But there's also no saying as to how that person's going to react. Yeah. There's no saying how that dog or cat's going to react either. That's true. You know? That's true. It, it It's about reading body language and stuff and and learning how to communicate with people silently as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been some people who, you know, if I see them based on what what they're doing at that time, like if they're talking to themselves and walking around in circles... I'm a little more likely to walk around them. Sure. Okay. Um, but if they're just sitting there, you know, huddling under their blanket or watching the traffic go by, I'm going to walk by. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to make eye contact. Yeah. And I'm going to say hi. I think that's a great answer. I think that's, I think that's really, uh, I think that's really just special. And, and there's a lot of heart behind what you're saying to give you a little bit of a break. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I really love the way you answered that. Oh, no, you. no, because I think you were great. Um, but uh, to give you a break, I was gonna say. Yeah, I, I just want to say there's no way. I myself have, I have no idea how we can resolve. Yeah. This issue. Right. It, it, it's definitely a societal issue. Sure. Um, I look at the history, I, I, I'm one of those people that when I get involved with something, I have to know everything. Sure. So I look at the history of homelessness and homelessness actually arose during the industrial age when the city started growing and people left the farms and started coming into the city to get jobs. And at first, it was great. Everybody could get a job. You know, you could get a place to live. People were making money. And then it got to the point where some people started getting too greedy. You couldn't, you know, your rent started raising up or they didn't like your work ethic and you couldn't get a job anymore. And people started being on the streets. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. And that's, it's uh it's sad and disturbing. What I was going to say before, and now I remember, forgive me, um, part of it, in order to give you a break with that last question, (laughs) was um, 
it's a lot of it's about conditioning, social conditioning. Like mm-hmm. when we're when we're growing up, there are a lot of subliminal or even you know intentional messages that are brought out there about uh, the the connection to uh, race and poverty, or 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 just like what part of town you're in, right? And what that means when it comes to that. You know, communities are changing all the time, and um, I well, think I think it, also it's interesting you mentioned communities because if you look at like the Amish community, sure, there's, there's no homelessness in home in the Amish. That's interesting. Okay. You, you know why? Tell because me. if you need a place to live, they build you one. <laughs> yeah, because it is a community effort. Everybody lives off of the efforts of everybody else in that community. It reminds me of uh, what they have in Israel. Have you ever heard of uh, kibbutzim? No. Or kibbutz, it's the singular version of that word. But kibbutzim are essentially uh, socialist communities that are created. Mm -hmm. And they thrive off of uh, everyone kind of taking turns doing chores in a community. Right. And also everyone in the community shares the same thing. So from what I understand about a lot of kibbutzim is that they actually have like uh, one single car per kibbutz hmm. and uh, you just sign out the car when you want to use it and you bring it back with a full tank of gas and then everyone is everyone eats around like the same time like they have like a breakfast lunch and right. i've always wanted to do it as like a program you know because they have right. programs where someone like me could sign up to do it uh leave for like a week or or, or two weeks or i think even a month-long program mm-hmm. of just like living on a kibbutz yeah and i would like to do that one day yeah it sounds like a really uh, special occasion i, I think and this is just my own philosophical musings is that we've as a as not a race but humankind in itself has outgrown itself we were meant to to live in smaller communities that everybody works together but then we built these cities and they've grown so much with millions of people that there's pockets of communities, but it's just people who live together, not people who actually live together. Does that? I don't know if that makes sense. No, no, no. It it, it totally does, and it makes me <laughs> it makes me think about a concept called singularity. And the concept of singularity is when you combine technology with anything biological, uh, specifically with human beings. Uh, so, for example, I could replace my uh, bone made hand with metal. Okay. And give my uh, hand a, 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 an ability it didn't have in the human form, right? Right. So I'm thinking about like that extension of ourselves, right? And you talk about that concept of outgrowing the human body as soon as we uh, go past the industrial age and become modernized with all these big, robust cities, right? right? Is that subliminally... Could that subliminally be the reason why singularity is a concept that's soon going to be a reality? Is because we need to evolve faster, fast enough to meet the the expanse of our cities, or is it not enough? Do you, do you think that that's possible? I think it's very possible. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because we're kind of already doing it. Like you see how people are attached to their phones. I mean, <laughs> you know, like people yeah. are walking around, heading their phone all the time. And and I, I I'm guilty of it. By the way, I'm not I'm not high on my horse about this. Is yeah. you know. I'm totally. I wake up first thing I do. Look at my phone. Yeah, there's a there's a commercial. It's a car commercial, and you see this kid walking down the street, and he's staring at his phone, and all this stuff is happening around him. Yeah, you know, and then he walks back the. And it reminds me. There was a, 
a short film that was made at the school a few years ago. I wish I could remember what it was called. Um, but it, it has the exact same concept where this this guy realizes everybody's so engrossed in his phone that he can do whatever he wants to. And so, like, steals food from the grocery store. Nobody sure. sees him. You know, he robs a bank and all this stuff happens. <laughs> and nobody notices because he's, you know, Everyone's they're all in their phone. phone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. It's like, my boss it... will call me and, you know, I'm driving the shuttle and he'll call me and be like, I won't answer the phone. Right. And I get to where I'm going and then I'll call him back and he's like, why didn't you answer the phone? I'm like, I'm driving. Right. You know, I'm responsible for 14 other human beings. Mm. I'm not, and whoever else is around me, I'm not sure. going to be on the, I'm, I am one of those people that I don't touch the phone at all while I'm driving. I think that's very admirable of you. It's my my one of my best traits. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't gonna say, I was gonna say it's my best trait, but no, it's one of my best. Traits. What's your other? What's your what's your best trait though? I'm modest. You're modest. <laughs> well, on that I have note, a good sense let's of go humor. back to talking about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back back to the film. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I cry. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been. Uh, I'm I'm about to do a uh, a fundraiser. Um, my hope is to raise, get enough money to actually live the life again. Okay. I want to get a van or an RV, okay. a medium-sized RV, so I can travel around the country because homelessness looks different in different parts of the country because of climate and weather and um, also the way different locations handle homelessness. I heard that the homeless population in Chicago actually is, I, I would say, fairly. It, it's it's handled in a very healthy way. Do yes. you know about Do you know about the Chicago scene? A little bit, Chicago and New York. Yeah, yeah. go go ahead and and what do you what do you know about it? Well, just that um, both of those cities, they have programs in place where when the weather gets really bad, either really hot or really cold, they'll actually open abandoned buildings that's yeah yeah to allow the homeless to be warm you know have a warm place to go or a cool place to go right and they'll provide you know blankets or water or whatever is necessary for them to survive right and that's what i've heard too yeah because it's crazy because the the death of the death rate of homeless in los angeles outweighs the death rate in new york and chicago it's disturbing yeah so can we please do that in los angeles (laughs) right you know I think that's I think that's bullshit that we're not doing that. In well, the West I actually Coast. heard that uh, there's so many empty houses and apartment buildings in Los Angeles that there is enough for every homeless person to have a place to live. And it's like, what? I, and that's not confirmed. Don't don't quote me on that. But I, I'm sure I'm sure if it's not a hundred percent accurate, it's, it's pretty, pretty close. close, and it would do a significant amount of of help to 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 these people who who need it yeah. to be able to get back on their feet. In hopes they get back on their feet anyway. Yeah. But, you know, it's it, it's it, total bullshit it, that, it, that... It's a huge social issue that probably we could talk about for several hours. You know, but, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. As well. But here's the thing. I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that big. Um, because it's, it's, case by, it's case by case. That's one thing. Well, part of the problem is, is a lot of people are like, I don't want them in my neighborhood. Tough shit. They're human beings. You don't want human it, beings in your neighborhood? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, they're too close to my kids. Or, you know, there's a law now stating that you can't, the homeless can't live 
even in their vehicles close to schools or parks or residential areas. Um, their vehicles will be towed. If that's the law you're going to go with, then you need to make a law that is for them. Right. You know? Absolutely. That you need I to totally make, agree. You know, if they can't be here, then where are they to go? There's an abandoned lot over, well, it's not really abandoned. It's owned by somebody, but it's an empty lot over in Woodland Hills. Okay. It's huge. Okay. I'm like, why don't we open that up, put some porta-potties and stuff in there, trash cans, let the people in RVs park in there. You know, somebody mentioned, well, who's going to pay for it and blah, blah, blah. Well, why not have the, all of that in a centralized location, you know, where we provide the city services to go in and clean up and, and all that kind of stuff, rather than having it spread all over the city? Right. That makes perfect sense to me. It, it, at least 200 RVs could go in there. Right. You know, and then, okay, so you provide a little extra police patrols to make sure... That, that things aren't happening that shouldn't be happening. But if they have a place to live where they can be safe and they can get the services that they need, right. they're not going to be out. I, I, I don't believe that the crime rate increases because of the homeless. There's been some talk about that, that but and it's just something that I'm like, people are going to commit crimes whether they're homeless or not. Right. And people are not going to commit crimes whether they're homeless or not. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's why that's part of what I mean by the, that conditioning mm -hmm. before is that we're conditioned to believe that because they're homeless, they're more highly susceptible to committing crime. Because they're homeless, they do drugs and are mentally ill. Because they're homeless, they're lazy. Right. Because they're homeless, they're dirty and they're black. Yeah. You know, and these aren't, none of these are true. Truth. You know? Yeah, yeah, you're we right got, on it. You're we right got, on it. we got clean white guys who are, who are committing heinous crimes. You have businessmen of all races that are, are, are willing to burn entire forests just for, just for profit and, yeah. and start wars just for profit, you know? Uh, you want to talk about crimes, I mean, internationally, no one's no one's no one's safe. No one's safe. <laughs> no, no one's safe when no. it comes to the being the getting the finger pointed at you. Yeah. You know? Yep. Uh it it's just a it's another sub level that that people can push others down to make them look better. Yeah. You know? It's we we just need to encourage that that community internal uh, how do i put it the the ability for everyone to encourage each other to grow within their own communities yeah you know i, yeah. I think that that's something something good that would come from an rv camp like what you just described in that apartment that 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 parking lot yeah you know yeah, i remember as a kid i think i was like five or six there was one day my my mom come home she's got these two people in the car with her no idea who these people are <laughs> She's like, hey, this is, you know, Bob and Mary. I met them on the street. Sure. And they don't have a place to live right now. So, you know, they're going to do laundry and take a shower and we're going to feed them and they're going to spend the night and then they'll be gone tomorrow. Okay. You know, that was, that was how my parents did things. If you saw somebody who needed help, you gave them help. And there were times when we didn't have a lot of money. 
there were a lot of times when we'd go out where I lived, um, you could get a nickel for cans and bottles. So mm-hmm. we'd go out and pick up cans and bottles for a couple of hours. So we have enough money to buy a dozen eggs and a loaf of bread. So we'd have something to eat for the next two or three days. Wow. Yeah. But if you, if we saw you on the corner, we'd say, Hey, we got some eggs and bread, sure. you know, come have some toast and eggs with us. Yeah. That's really sweet. <laughs> That's a really sweet thing to grow up with. Um, you, you don't see that today. Everybody's no. like, Oh, what if they kill you in the middle of the night? Well, we're today nowadays we're we're a lot more paranoid than ever before. Absolutely. And, and I I say paranoid as if it that's a superficial fear. I it's it's not a superficial fear. There's definitely a justification for it. But you know, I think that I've preached this in previous episodes, especially with um the episode of Evan Siegel talking about uh his his movie that was fighting anti Semitism with, with, with film. Really great movie that he made. Um, the idea that I iterated was if you want to solve, and I'm now going to raise that percentage that I said in the previous episode, Mm -hmm. if you want to solve 99% of all your country's issues, just fund education. Yeah. That's really what you got to do. I mean, obviously you got to fund other things as well, but the crux of your funding has to go towards education. It really does. Mm-hmm. You you want you want communities to rediscover their abilities and each other, educate. You want children to grow up and 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 be able to think outside the box, educate. You know, it. You want programs to encourage people to to grow and to thrive in ways that they could never imagine. Uh, it starts with initiating the brain. Absolutely, it yeah. does not start with spreading fear. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just the country we live in. And, yeah. And... That could take us on to a whole other whole tangent. Whole other tangent. You know what? <laughs> yeah. But let's stop now. <laughs> yeah. Let's stop now. Let's reel it back in Sure. A yeah. Sure. But you know what, though? <laughs> I don't it, mind. What's, what's kind of amazing is we've, we've kind of explored a little bit of some of these, some of these uh, avenues that you're, that you're looking into, which is, by the way, why I think you're going to succeed is because you've given yourself options. But these options, these little windows, as I described earlier, the tentacles and every little pool of right. the octopus self you are, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, they all come from a very eclectic background of who you are. Uh, I mean, where can we even begin yeah. with talking about... I know people ask me, so, you know, who are you or what do you do? And I'm like, well, I do just about everything, right. <laughs> you know, there's... More things that I haven't done than what I have. No, there's less things that I haven't done than what I have. Yeah. <laughs> you you're gonna talk about that in your book, Renaissance Woman, right? I am. Yes. Uh, so it's an autobiography that I'm working on, talking about my life, which, you know, at the moment, not a lot of well, a few people know who I am, but sure. uh, not everybody knows me yet, but they will. Uh, I I have a varied background both volunteer and paid of things that I have done uh, for fun or for work or whatever that has led to an interesting lifestyle. Yeah. Um, would you like me to list a few? Oh well, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, well, first yeah. off, where, where, where were you born? I was born in Portland, Oregon. Okay. At the Portland sanitarium. Was which that no longer exists? Right. <laughs> was that, was that an okay lifestyle over there? 
Because you kind yeah. of described like yeah. your family. <laughs> I grew up a I grew up in an area of Portland that the police called the Squirrel. The Squirrel. Yeah, because that's where all the nuts lived. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> it I was, love that. It was kind of you know it it was an interesting place to live because some of the streets were paved and some of them were not right and there were no sidewalks um i learned how to how to get around the city because when i was like four or five i used to follow the postman around the neighborhood so you were a nut i was a nut yeah <laughs> i would follow him around and he actually taught me how to tell what direction i was going based on um the, the numbers on the houses and based on because portland has set up in a nice grid, north, south, east, and west. Right. Uh, Burnside splits it in north and south, and the Willamette River uh, splits it east and west. And so depending on what you're... Like, I, I grew up in southeast Portland, so like 82nd Street, down by Foster. So I was on the southeast corner of the city. Okay. And if the numbers got smaller... I knew I was, and I was on a street with a name, not a number. Okay. Then I was going to the east. Okay. No, the west. I'm sorry. The, the, the west. west. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. But if I was on a number street and I, the numbers were getting smaller, then I was going north. Super interesting. I yeah. I am personally <clears throat> terrible, horrifyingly terrible with directions. I take the navigation to go down the block. Yeah. I have a geographic uh, memory. I, I don't. <laughs> so I can go someplace once, or I can look at it on a map, and I can drive directly there, uh, which has helped in a lot of situations. When I was 13, I started training police dogs. Wow. Um, I worked with 86 canine units over seven years. Well, that's totally normal and casual. Right? Yeah. That's <laughs> what every high school student is doing on their days off. Okay. Um, which helped in a lot of situations because I would ride with the police officers and my first ride along, the the officer told me, "This is that's the shotgun. This is how you take it out. It's already loaded. Just pump it and aim and shoot if you need to. <laughs> if something happens to me, you need to know where we are at all times." Sure. And so that kind of ingrained in my head, I'm like, okay, I need to pay attention. And at one time, I can't do it anymore, but you could give me an intersection, and I could tell you what was on all four corners of the intersection. I can't do that. I, I I am unable to remember what's on the, you know, like um, the, the intersection outside of my house. Sure, I can do that. Yeah. But but beyond that, the world is vast and with a lot of question marks. I, <laughs> I, I just can't do that. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, I don't know if it's something that I was born with or something that I developed, you know, just paying attention to the landmarks and stuff, which helped me a lot because I drove a tow truck for a couple of years. Okay. And when, it's funny because as a tow truck driver, when you're giving directions, you're like, go down to the second Taco Bell, turn left. If you pass the Denny's, you've gone too far. You know, we used restaurants as right. markers instead of go to the street light or the name of the street yeah, or whatever. Sure. Um, so wait, wait, wait. <clears throat> Trained police dogs, 86 of them to be precise? 86, yeah. Okay. Wow. Did you have a favorite type of dog to train? We mostly use German Shepherds. That um, makes sense, yeah. Some of them, the department that I worked out of, we used dogs that we got from the pound. Okay. Um, so a lot of them were mixed breeds. 
the, uh, most of the other departments would use purebred dogs. I did work with a couple of Schutzen dogs. Um, Schutzens are trained by somebody else, and then they're brought in and work with a handler. Um, the dogs that I worked with, we would train them ourselves. They, we call them dog masters. So they would start with the dog, and they would train at the same time as the dogs trained. Wow. So they would completely, hopefully, completely understand the nuances of the dog. Yeah. Like some dogs, if they're on... If they're on a scent, their tail might go up. Their oh. body, their body language will change. I see. Um, so they have to learn how to read the, the dog's body language. Sure. Um, with a Schutzen dog that's been trained by somebody else, um, you don't always have that closeness. Um, my favorite dog was a Schutzen dog. His, okay. His name was Dingo. Um, and he was a black and silver German Shepherd. Wow. And like the moment he and I laid eyes on each other, it was love. Aww. From both of us, yeah. Well, that but that did that love ever distract from your ability to to, to work with the dog, or did it, no. did it amplify it? Okay, there's actually I have a story for you. Okay, tell me a story. So, when we're training, I I, I would never interfere with the police officer, especially in the field and stuff. We would not interfere with what the dog handlers were doing or the dog masters. There was one night I was a bad guy. Um, Dingo and his handler came. They found me. We were heading back, and I was, like, probably 50 feet ahead of them. And I heard the handler give the command to attack. And I just stopped. I'm like, I don't hear anything. So I slowly turn around, and I see the dog is just sitting there staring up at him like, what are you doing? So I'm like, okay, well, that was interesting. Sure. I don't really say anything. We go back, and then... Later on, we have all the dogs are laying down. They're, we're doing some obedience training. Okay. And I'm walking around trying to distract the dogs. That's my job. And then I stop, and I call Dingo to me. And he gets up. He heals next to me. And all of the police officers are like, what is she doing? And so I start, I'm like, hey, come on out. I won't tell the, say the officer's name. I'm like, come on out here. He starts to step forward. I give Dingo the command to attack, and he heads off. I called him off. I called him back to me. He came back, sat down. I said, don't ever blindside me again. And you can see the other officers are like, okay, she trained our dogs from the time they were pups. And she trained. she's only been working with this dog for a few months. And what she can do with that dog, what can she do with ours? Right. Wow. <laughs> that's he, so intense he, yeah he, ended, he he apologized he's like you know i i just wanted to see what dingo would do if he would actually <laughs> that's not a good that's he's, not a good reason and he's like it, well kind it kind of made sense because the relationship between the bond between the, his dog and me was much stronger than the bond between him and the dog yeah but the trust that he had with me knowing that out in the field I would never interfere with what he was doing with his dog unless he was in imminent danger and I needed to use the dog to save him. And so, I mean, it, it, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I bet it was. Was that your favorite kind of oddball job? Yes. Yeah. I, I, it'd be my favorite, too. Yeah. Just because yeah. I'm a dog lover, personally. Right, right. You know? I, I, I have, uh, when I was driving tow truck, I had my own dog um, who had... 
I'd rescued her from the pound, and somebody had tried to train her. Um, and she was very aggressive, uh, but I had her for 13 years. And, like, I loved it because I could put her in the car, leave the car running. There was nobody getting in that car, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's my dog. And I have a tattoo of her now, so. Aw. Yeah. That's she's, sweet. She's watches my heart all the time. Aw. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so great. So besides doing that, um, I played semi-pro baseball for a year. Did you really? I did, yeah. What position were you? Um, first base, third string catcher, and pitcher. Okay. Yeah, I could, they clocked me at 86 miles an hour. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. At, just after that, I was also, uh, I was trying to go pro for bowling. and uh, Were you really? Yeah. Okay. I, I played on three leagues a week and averaged 200. <laughs> so what, what stopped you? Uh, I hurt my back. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it happened. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I've done a lot of things. Um, I managed a movie theater, worked at a recycling plant. I was a short order cook. When you first started to show your resume to people and they saw like this, such a broad spectrum of things that you've tackled, what was the first thing that they would say? Um, well, I, I've always been one to kind of tailor my resume to whatever the job was. I mean, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, and I did a lot of security work. I worked in security on and off for 18 years and... So a lot of the, I, I would have like the police dog training in that and, you know, my other security stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I never really opened it up so people could see everything I've done. Right. <laughs> you know. But this is, this is the closest you've come to that resume is, is talking about everything you've ever done. Yes. And it's just so wild. It, it, it is. It's <laughs> trying to figure out what needs to go into the book and what doesn't. Right. You know, and also not just the jobs, but. Um, a lot of my life is about the people that I've met and the experiences that I've had with them, you know, going to, uh, I've probably been to 60 or 70 Broadway shows wow. on Broadway. Yeah. You know, I've lived in, uh, grew up in Oregon. I lived in New Jersey. I lived in Washington state. Now I'm here in Los Angeles and, you know, just ex those different experiences with the pe different types of people. It's <laughs> <That's> neat. <laughs> That's just so neat. I, you know, I, I, I used to think that my uh, resume was pretty expansive, but now I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. My best friend, uh, she was not made to work, uh, She, but she was made to get jobs. Okay. And by the time she was 25, we counted it up and she'd had almost a thousand jobs. Wait, what? Yeah, because she'd work for a day and then quit. What? Yeah. That Okay. Yeah. That's that's not good. No. She, okay. She's a homemaker now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She takes care of the kids. And, okay. Yeah. Her husband has a good job, so. Okay. But, gotcha. Like, it's so gnarly. <laughs> it, it's crazy because we both wanted to be police officers, and I'm like, you got to learn how to hold on to a job for more than a day. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I, I, I am guilty, I will say, of like. You know, uh, there there have been jobs where I've only worked for a couple of months and then quit. 
Yeah. But those are jobs that are like in between when you're trying to figure things out. Those are little phases that before you go on to the next thing. Right, right. You know? She, she'd work like, um, she'd do security for a couple of days. And then she'd be working as a cashier at a gas station or something. Or right. a janitor. I mean, there were just odd, weird jobs all over the place. I'm like, focus on something. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but... Whatever. That's not That was her life, so. Yeah. Wow. But now you're here. And how'd you get into, how'd you get started in, in film exactly? Well, I knew from a young age when I was like five that I either wanted to be a cop or a writer. And when I started training police dogs at 13, that was the beginning of my pursuit of law enforcement. Unfortunately, uh, Reaganomics hit in the early 90s. And police departments were laying people off rather than hiring them. I was on, I was in the top on many lists to be a police officer. I kind of lost track, ended up getting into a job, which, doing security, which leads to an interesting story. (laughs) Um, One of the first jobs I ever did, I was working, training with this lady. She was in her 40s. Her husband also worked security in the building across the street. They had the exact same hours and everything so they could travel together, you know, for work. And uh, she told me, she's like, whatever you do, don't get stuck in this job and wake up in your 40s and you're still doing the same job. Of course, I was young and I'm like, "Ah, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to be fine. But then one day I woke up, I was 43. (laughs) It's a long long nap. (laughs) It was a long nap. (laughs) And uh, I was working security for a place that I absolutely hated. Um, It wasn't fulfilling. I've done some security jobs that were very fulfilling, but this one was not one of those. And uh, I decided, well, I managed to get myself fired (laughs) Uh, because I hated the job so much I had a hard time getting to work on time. (laughs) I would go, but I was always a few minutes late. Sure. Um, so I got fired and then I was like, well, what am I going to do? And one of my best friends was like, you keep talking about going back to school, go back to school. So I applied for FAFSA and I went back to school and I was at, uh, Portland Community College Mm -hmm. getting an associate's degree. My second quarter, I took a screenwriting class because my plan at the time was I was going to get a degree in English and teach overseas and then write about my travels. And second quarter, I took screenwriting class and realized that was what I was meant to do. And so from then on, my pursuit was to be a screenwriter. I got my associate's degree, transferred to Columbia College Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and it was a perfect school for me because at CCH, um, even though your emphasis might be writing or acting or directing, you get a broad knowledge of every position in the filmmaking world. Yeah. Which, as I said before, I, when I in there, am interested in something, I need to know everything. Sure. And so that really worked for me. And I ended up um, working at the school, working on a lot of projects. Probably, it's got to be somewhere close to 80 short films that I've worked on now. That's remarkable. Yeah, since 2013. Wow. And, uh, you know, have been able to, have written a lot of stuff, 
had a few things that have been made. I actually have a film coming out in a couple of days. <laughs> oh, you only decide now to tell <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah. What's this uh, movie? Uh, it's called Implanted. Implanted, okay. Yeah, uh, it's a horror thriller okay. kind of thing. Sure. It's coming out on YouTube on Halloween. Neat. Yeah. Good timing. Um, yeah, we planned it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... That's how I ended up getting in, and as I went through, I thought I only wanted to be a screenwriter, that I just wanted to sit on that side, but I got into doing sound, and I found out that I really like being on set. I like being around the people and and doing that. I still love writing. That's my passion, Um, but then my bossiness also comes out. (laughs) And that's when I was like, you know, I, uh, I got the opportunity to do precedent and to be the director, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed working with the people and making the decisions. Uh, so, it's it's a work for me, and I can. I, my future to me is writer director, mostly. This is gonna sound messed up, but I have a question. Yeah. Do you think your experience with dogs and training them? helped you in your leadership skills on set? Not implying yeah. that people on film sets are dogs, but <laughs> that's why it's screwed up. Uh, but I, I think everything that I've done has has led to that. Um, I, I feel like I, I was a natural-born leader. Um, I've always been the person to step up. You know, if there's a group pro- project, I was always the one that stepped up and said, okay, this is how we're going to do this. Um, it did, yeah, and I don't know if Nicole mentioned this, but um, so we met We met in our freshman year. I keep hitting this thing, I'm yeah, sorry. You, you need to chill. I'm, I must be Italian or something. I keep using my hands. Put, put, <laughs> sit on your hands. <laughs> um, so we met freshman year, and at the end of freshman year, they were having elections for president, vice president, the student government. Nicole and I, ha- we weren't friends, technically. We knew each other. Gotcha. And I approached her, and I was like, hey, so my bucket list, I've always wanted to run for student government. Okay. And I need somebody to run with me. Will you do it? And she's like, well, let me think about it. And then it got to be the last day of signups, and so I signed us up. <laughs> <laughs> so she didn't actually say she didn't yes. <laughs> and, then, and, then I, and then I went to her, and I was like, hey, by the way, I hope you're okay with this. I signed us up. And we ended we ended up winning 80% of the vote. Okay. And so our second year, because we both were transfers, our second year we I was president. She was vice president. And then at the end of that year, nobody wanted to run, <laughs> so we won again by default. And she became president, and I was vice president. So, um, it was like it was a bucket list thing. I never thought that I would actually go through with it, and then actually winning. And I really enjoyed actually being the president. And right, and that's how you created that bond with Nicole. Yeah, and that was just one of the many displays of your leadership. Yes, yeah, it was interesting. I had to speak at graduation that year. It's like, I I thought about it all year long. <laughs> I don't know if I could do this. There's so many people. And I got there. And there's like 700 people in the room. Wow. And 
I'm sitting there, I can hear the Dean's talking and he's talking about me, introducing me. Suddenly this calm just came over me. And I was like, I own this blanking room. Just say it. I own this fucking room. Fuck yeah, you do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got up on stage and I had a speech, but I didn't read any of it. I just talked from my heart and basically told them, you know, as filmmakers, this is my philosophy. As filmmakers, we make movies about life, but you can't make a good film about life unless you've lived a good life. So go out and experience life so your movies will be better. Yeah. And so I use my experiences. If you look at my LinkedIn page, it says I'm using my past to write my future. I love, I I did see your LinkedIn (laughs) and I I love that personally. I think that was just a neat little tidbit about you. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's that right, what you know, and you don't realize what you know until you're doing something like making a movie and you're like, Oh, I know how to do that. Sure. You know, I, I did something like that 20 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever. And, and so you can draw upon that past and you just don't realize that you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> well, I just want to congratulate you, Linda, first off on the, on the film that's coming out this Halloween, but also just on, on being able to, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like one thing that one, one misconstrued concept is um there's no such thing as being late right uh when, when it comes to approaching a new a new passion and i just want to commend you for for doing what you've done uh i i looked i definitely look to you as a role model oh, for sure you. in terms of your work ethic and all, everything that you've put in so i just you know want yeah. to say Thanks for being awesome, oh. and, and I can't wait to see the rest of your work. You're welcome. I got some other films coming up, too, so, yeah. Like you said, I always have projects. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have, like, 30 writing projects that are on the list of things to be oh done. Oh, my God. And, yeah. Um, hoping to film a feature next month. <laughs> it's, it's it's really amazing how just switching that job, and then now you're just this busy. Yeah. Fulfilling this passion. Yeah. It, you know, I look at some of the other people that I've... I've known through the school and stuff, and they have gotten distracted. Some of them have realized that film's not the thing for them, which is great. Find something that is. But some of them are like, this is what I want to do. And and I'm like, okay, so what are you doing? And they're not doing anything. Like, well, I'm too busy with work. I'm too busy with that. My workday starts at 8 in the morning and ends at midnight, Monday through Thursday. ends at 8 o'clock on Fridays. Yeah. But I'm still finding the time to write scripts, to consult with people, to, you know, go out and shoot a, you know, short film. Sure. Whatever needs to be done. And I, I hear that all the time myself, by the way. There are some prime examples that I can think of that, like, like one of my friends, he's he's too busy uh, with his daytime job working at a Spirit Halloween store that's open all year round. Okay. So, for... One month of the year, he's busy. And then after that, he's not busy. Right. So work is slow. And he does catering on the side. And he did the thesis program with me. Okay. And that thesis program, which was exclusive, which you had to apply for right. to get into it. Um, and I, I'm like, well, did you, have you, do you apply to, do you apply to other jobs? Do you apply to, or, or do you make your own films? No. 
Do you apply to any assistant jobs? No. Have you reached out to some of your fellow thesis students to to get on projects with them? No. Yeah. So the problem isn't that you live in San Francisco, which is what he told me. The problem is that you're not doing anything with your life. I see jobs on Mandy all the time looking for people to work in San Francisco. Right. You know, as a PA or or a gaffer or whatever, you know, needs to be done. They're always filming up there. Right. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Especially especially now, uh, the Bay Area is exploding with uh, a lot of films coming out in Oakland. Yeah. You know, which is super interesting to me. Um, a lot of films uh, in Connecticut I've seen a lot showing mm-hmm. popping up there, mm-hmm. which I, I don't even know what's going on with Connecticut in the film industry, but I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, right. I heard about uh, a, a cinematographer whose career is exploding because he's the only cinematographer in Arizona. That's mm-hmm. not true. He's not the only, but he's the, the, guy. De- the yeah. desert photographer, essentially. Yeah. You know, and it's like, wait, what? Yeah. What are these niches that people are tapping you know, into? And it's so interesting it, to me. And not just in the United States, but there's areas all over the world. Like, I've got a friend who yeah. went, he went to New Zealand for fun, and he's been there for almost two years because he keeps getting work <laughs> in the film industry. Right. Because they don't have one. Right. But they have people there who are willing to spend money to make films. Right. And if you know what you're doing, they're going to hire you. It's very interesting how we, we, we're in this expanding film industry. And some people say it's oversaturated. Maybe Los Angeles can have its oversaturated yeah. qualities, but you know what? There's still no excuse. Right. You know? There, there's there's no excuse to not find work. And I know that, that can be disheartening for someone who's not successful at it, but that means that there's more that can be done. Yeah, Which definitely. is an exciting thing. Yeah. You there's know? also, you know, um, we were you and I were talking earlier about your job. You chose to go to... The Hollywood location so that you could talk to people. Yeah, so it, I, it, I I don't know if people I actually typically don't talk about it on the podcast, but I'm I'm now going to be very public about it. I, I work at Dave and Buster's. Right. Um. I I quit my last job at a company that I will not say its name because I have no respect for it. <laughs> uh. At the company, there was a producer that uh was incredibly toxic and wasn't afraid to say dirty jokes and wasn't afraid to degrade people. Um, I was underpaid. And by underpaid, I mean I had a bachelor's degree. And as an audio technician, I was being paid minimum wage. But by far, I mean, that was an entertainment job. But I think you probably feel like you have better opportunities now working at Dave & Buster's. Because in, you're in, meeting people. In a way, yes. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, I specifically chose the Hollywood location at Dave & Buster's so that... I could meet fellow filmmakers and I've met fellow filmmakers and dancers and singers and rappers yeah. and, and, yeah. and artists of all crafts. Yeah. And it's been really amazing. Yeah. See, uh, everywhere I go, I talk to people. I'm always talking to people at the coffee shop or the grocery store. And I'm like, what do you do? What do you do? You yeah. know? And 90% of the time it's somebody who's in the business. Yeah. Right. In some right. ways. And like, oh yeah. I'm a filmmaker too. You know, here's my card. Here's your card. You know, yeah. let's, let's, talk and and, sure. and that's more of what filmmaking is about the networking it, aspect is the networking aspect yeah yeah of, you know I, most of the time driving around in an uber the, the driver's somebody who they're an actor or they a director or they want to make a movie or something you know and just meeting people and talking to people and continuing those relationships 
with people who want to do film. I think... Or TV. Here's the thing about the film industry. If you are unable to network, then you're in the wrong industry. And if you're unable to network, then you really get really good at your craft. Yeah. You know what's funny is, like, <laughs> I, I've gone to some actual networking events, meetups sure. and stuff. I am lousy at that. I am the wallflower. I, I, I get in these groups, and I see all these people, and I think... They never. They don't want to talk to me because they don't know I'm not anybody. But I get into a one-on-one situation, and it's much easier for me to strike up a conversation. Sure. And I like. I just like to talk to people, and that was one of the reasons that I, I took this job recently and turned down two other jobs that were offered to me. Sure. The hours suck, but I have the opportunity to continue to meet people and to talk to people, and you know work. I can work with these kids on their projects. Yep. Because I'm always like, people, Nicole has said to me, you need to stop doing jobs for free. But I'm like, one of them might be Steven Spielberg. You know, in a few years, they might be the next Ron Howard or whatever. And if I do something for free for them now, maybe they'll give me a job later or I'll give them a job. Right. You know. Yeah. It's all about building each other up. It definitely is. You know, networking is a very scary word for some people. But Absolutely. Let's. Let, I want to take the myth out of it for a second. You know what networking is synonymous with? What's that? Making friends. Making friends. And it's really simple. Now, granted, even though I'm an extrovert, I am an extrovert, uh, and I'm arrogant, and I, you know, if you see me talking with some people, chances are I'll be just as involved as everyone else. But there is one aspect of making friends that I really, really hate, and it's breaking the ice the first in the first moment. Because I'm right. that's actually one thing I'm terrible at. That's why I was. <laughs> this is funny to say this as, as I have a girlfriend now, but I I am trash at dating apps. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I just I just don't get them, and yeah. I I like like that first like com- like the first thing you say in a conversation. Yeah. I'm I'm the lame ass vanilla dude who goes. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I used to I, I used the dating apps a long time ago. I I, I don't anymore. But um, they no, they're overrated. Yeah, I, I actually so I was moving from Oregon to New Jersey, and sure. I wanted to I wanted to meet guys in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. in New York. Sure. And I wasn't getting anywhere with you know what my profile was. So sure. I actually took the title of an ABBA song. Take a chance on me. Okay. Put that on there. I got so many responses. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I probably got two or three hundred responses. Okay. And not just from people in New Jersey, but people in Oregon too. And they're oh, like, wow. Well, I'll take a chance on you. I'm like, I'm moving to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you coming out now? <laughs> you had all this time. Yeah. Yeah. That's hysterical. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But you know what though? This film industry is exciting, and, and I, it's so funny how quitting a job in the film industry and leaving for something in the service world has opened some doors in a weird way. One 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 of my coworkers that I left behind at work, she said to I you know, when I was quitting, I said to her, who was equally as miserable, if not more miserable than I am, I, I said to her, so uh, when are you going to quit? When are you going to get out of this dump? Right. And... She said, I'm just, her being the religious person that she is, by the way, which I totally respect, but she says, I'm just going to let God take me where, where I want to go or to where I need to go. 
and I, th- I thought about that and I didn't have the heart to say it to her face, mm-hmm. but I hated that. Yeah. I hated that. Well, I think of it, 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 I'm not overly religious or anything, but God can open the door. You have to step through it. Yeah. And maybe well God said. has opened that door for her mm-hmm. and she's not stepped through it. I actually had, um, when I was still a student, there was a guy who was working at the school who we would talk a lot and he'd talk about how he wanted to do these projects and blah, 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 and he never had any time. And I was, you know, working part-time, full-time student, and still making films, you yeah. know, on the weekends and stuff. Sure. And after a few months, he, he, he came to me and he goes, hey, I just wanted you to know um, I gave my notice and I'm going to be a full-time filmmaker now. Whoa. Yeah. He goes, I, I have you to thank for that. He's like, I, I, I see everything that you're doing and how you're pursuing it. And he's he's doing okay. It's been a few years, and he's been directing some stuff. He, he works with uh, military veterans. and Hell yeah. Yeah. And he's. I think he has a web series now. So Wow. Yeah. I mean, good yeah. for him. <laughs> Look what you did. I know. <laughs> That's so cool. I, I do get a lot of people who are like, yeah, you really inspired me to... To, to do this thing or to do that. I'm wow. Like, you know, the worst thing that can happen, I always tell people, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you stay in the same spot. That could be a bad thing. Exactly. Yeah. It could be a but, pretty bad thing. You know, there was, when I got hired uh, working at the movie theater, I was hired as a ticket seller. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd only been there like a week and they were like, hey, we're going to, we're going to promote somebody to supervisor. So I uh, I'll turn in my resume. I want to be a supervisor. And everybody's like, you've only been here two weeks. What's going to happen? I'm like, they're not going to fire me if they don't make me supervisor, but they'll give me a raise if they do. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they did. And then three <laughs> months later, they made me a manager. Right. And I'm like, the worst that can happen is they say no. They're not right. going to fire me, you know, if they don't pick me. Sure. I still have a job. Right. <laughs> so... Like the worst that can happen, and it's the same with the film industry. You can go and ask for somebody for money, and they could say no, but they could say yes, right. and you'll never know if you don't ask. Right. Yeah. So, like precedent, everybody who worked on that film worked for free. Sure. Yeah, except maybe one exception. Gotcha. But you know, um, it, it was a collaboration of everybody being like, "I really love this project. Let's do this." Sure. And hopefully there'll be rewards in a few months. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I'm I, I would pray for you, but I don't think you need it. <laughs> I'll take all the help I can get. Well, I mean, you'll get. <laughs> I appreciate help. it. If someone out there right now who is listening wanted to reach out and help you, or wanted to network with you, what is the best way to contact you? Um, I am on all the social medias. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. LinkedIn, on Facebook, and it's all under my name, Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, Sparger, S-P-A-R-G-U-R. All that information will be displayed in the description below. And finally, Linda, the question I ask everybody on this podcast, what will you be famous for? I will be famous for my generosity with my time and my heart. Linda, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks again. Thank you. Oh, wow. What a great episode. This production took time, 
energy, and money to produce. To support the growing business of this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash mrthrive to become a thriver today. That is patreon.com slash mrthrive. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.